to this episode of Zen Mama in the Addict. We're in the middle of February. I hope you had a nice Valentine's and felt some love and was able to give some love. We certainly need that right now. A little kindness, a little gentle forgiveness for maybe those days when we're not all feeling the best versions of ourselves. And I think it's super important for us to just allow that to be, right? And as I have posted a few resiliency tools around building our containers to support um, our well-being. So remember to take good care. Do the little things that make you feel good consistently every day to help move your body into a better state of health and your mind, too. Really what we choose to rest our thoughts on really builds the areas of our brain that either support our health and well-being and feelings of um, optimism and hope or kind of take us down the drain into feeling a little hopeless. So be sure you're really mindful about what you um, allow in, what you choose to listen to and watch and, you know, find what feels good. Surround yourself with people that feel like sunshine and lift you up as much as you can. I'm really excited um, this week's episode to have a really meaningful conversation with someone who has both uh, walked the path of addiction and has been in recovery for nine years and but continues to walk beside her mom that struggles. So she kind of has this perspective of being on both sides. I know I found it incredibly helpful and insightful, and I think any of you um, walking or being in this um, challenging world of addiction and recovery will really find this conversation with Sonia very um, informative and hopeful. Welcome to this episode of Zen Mama in the Attic. Uh, this is Mary, and today I'm meeting with Sonia, and I'm going to have you say your last name. Savalier. Savalier. Sorry, I'm not very good at that. <laughs> um, so thank you and welcome. Really excited to have you here today. Um, Sonia was referred to me by a friend, her co-worker that does my hair, um, and we had a brief talk the other day, and I'm just really excited to um, have you share your story around addiction and recovery. And um, I know we're going to have some really great conversations. So why don't we get right at it? Go ahead and uh, yeah, go ahead and just tell us a little bit about where you're from and your current state of being, and then we'll go backwards from there. So my name is Sonia. Um, I'm from Vermont. I've kind of lived all around Vermont. Uh, I probably spent the majority of my time in the St. Albans area. <laughs> and um, at this point in my life, I am a hairdresser. I love my job. I love my career. Um, I will be 27 in March, and I've got uh, a little bit over nine years of recovery. So been at this for a little while. Yeah. Um, I, I think that this is great. This podcast is so awesome. Like I told you before, um, sorry, my dog is barking in the background. It's okay. um, We're used uh, to that in this uh, day and age of zooming. Yeah. I mean, who's going nuts right now? Um, so yeah. So I think that <laughs> this platform that you have is awesome. Um, and kind of giving a voice to all different sides of addiction, trauma, 
life struggle, mm-hmm. all of it. Um, and having like an honest conversation is fantastic. And I'm all about that. Yeah, I have. Um, thank you for sharing that. I think that um, I've got a lot of feedback in that way. I just think to have something that's relatable for people about like we say the shit you don't really want to talk about, but you know, you're, we're all carrying it around with us. It's part yeah. of our story. So the more we can share, the more we can maybe set it free. Right. Live life on our terms a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really, um, one of the the things that's really special about our conversation today is that Sonia's lived on both sides of addiction and walking beside someone struggling with addiction. So, um, I know that we're going to touch on some things. A lot of you are going to really, um, identify with and yeah, I, I even have a lot of questions for you because I know you've done a lot of work in your recovery. Um, so I look forward to that. But maybe if you'd like to start with um, your history with addiction, that might be a nice place to start. Sure. So um, I I was born um, kind of into a life of addiction, I would say. My mom had me when she was really, really young. She got pregnant when she was 17. She had me when she was 18. And she, you know, was uh, still growing up also and had lots of her own demons. And uh, she struggled with relationships a lot, as a lot of people do. Um, And so I would say for the majority of my childhood, it was her and I just like together, you know, And as she was sort of growing up, she went through all sorts of levels of addiction, you know, from like a wino to smoking meth, you know, like she was like fully up and down all over the place. Um, And so it was kind of like unstable. um, But the weird thing was because I just grew up like that, like it didn't feel really unstable to me. Um, It was just sort of the way that my life was. And, um, you know, the people that we spent time around more people that also were addicts. And so they were in the same sort of positions that we were and they had kids. And so we all sort of just like lived in that sort of world, Um, which obviously looking back on it was not not very good. Um, And I think that it contributed to a lot of like my sort of deep seated, you know, fears and the way that I, you know, my reactions to things of course, are related a lot of times to your upbringing. And so I feel like it plays a huge part in kind of the future of my addiction was like watching it play out with my mom um, and having this be someone I love so, so much, you know, and seeing her go through all of this. And uh, it was not, it wasn't like addiction and watching that wasn't something that I was like, wow, that's really bad because it was my mom doing it, you know? So it was, it was kind of a weird, a weird relationship with addiction that I grew up with. And I think that. Did you feel like you were taking care of your mom more than she was taking care of you? Yeah, for sure. It was, I mean, I definitely grew up fast. um, And it was a lot of that codependency um, and, you know, as I got older, you know, like 12, 13, you know, things would happen. Like my mom, she taught me how to drive when I was 12. Uh, and like, she would during the day get so drunk, you know, and then I had a baby sister. So I would drive us to go get my baby sister from daycare, 
you know, so things like that sort of, uh, but at the same time, like I said, I just grew up like that. So it wasn't really like a change for me. It wasn't like she was this one thing and then completely this other. It was just kind of your normal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so there must be a part of you though, as a kid, I mean, you just must know it's not normal because your other friends and you didn't talk to anybody about it. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, my friends that were, their parents did the same thing. Okay. We all kind of just speculated of things. And like, I knew deep down, it was strange that I had to do all these things for my mom, but I also knew I got, there was some point in my life where I was able to sort of feel like embarrassment maybe, or like a little shame or something. And so it just crept in. Um, and that's when I would stop really talking about like, you know, the things my mom would do or whatever. And I would just say, Oh, she's good. You know, just kind of gloss over it. So I just sort of started covering for her a little bit as I, as I grew up. Um, and that just like happened. That wasn't like, you know, one day I was like, wow, this is not a good thing that she's doing. It was just kind of just built into my brain a little bit. And at some point I was like, this isn't right. Um, but it's my mom and I want to protect her, you know, from everybody basically. I'm sure there's a part of it as a kid and I, you know, we'd have to get into development, but I'm sure developmentally at some stages it felt, um, really good to be able to show up in that way. Like there must've been some association of that amongst all the other emotions, which I imagine were things yeah, you it was didn't perfect. let yourself feel. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it was like, I served, that was my purpose being a caretaker mm-hmm. and um, being the one that could kind of fix things, you know? Um, and then there was a point when I was 14 where everything came to a head Uh, and my mom, she just kind of just went off the deep end and she, uh, tried to kill herself Mm. and she had wrote, you know, suicide notes to me and my aunts. And, um, it was really a horrific, really traumatizing experience. And, um, she ended up, she spent about 18 months in the psych ward at the hospital kind of in and out. And then I, I, it sort of felt like. I had an intense anger because I, I, I felt like she was giving up on us or I wasn't good enough to like, you know, keep things moving or I couldn't help her through whatever she was going through. Um, I've heard the kids in my life sometimes say they kind of feel like it's their fault. Like I, you know, you don't, it's so obviously not, but I think as kids, you think and level do, level do the trick, right? Yeah, first exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly what I, I felt because, you know, my entire upbringing was her and I, uh, thick as thieves. Right. And I was the one that did kind of fix everything. And I was the one that made things work out. And then all of a sudden, like everything comes crashing down and it was like, what the fuck, you know, yeah. uh, it was really, really hard. And then I just, uh, there was, an, I felt like I didn't have a purpose either. I felt like I felt like she took my purpose also. And then it was such an empty feeling and, you know, anger coming in and I just didn't have anyone to talk to or turn to. Uh, And it's hard at that age that I was because you're so vulnerable. Um, And man, it just, 
that that was almost like the day that things changed for me mm-hmm. that exact day and then after that you know i i picked up my first drug like probably the day after all of that had happened the I day said, after she went in the hospital yeah um it was like that sort of quick yeah um, and you know it just spiraled as it does mm-hmm. from there um and i think that kind of an interesting thing about my story is that I was really young when everything started. Um, and I, uh, but I, for a long time, I used that as an excuse that like, Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't actually have a problem. Right. I'm just experimenting. I'm a teen. Um, and it took a long time to understand that, you know, people like to use whatever they can to separate themselves from the others, right. The others like drug addicts. Yeah, um, yeah, right. And my age was the thing I used forever. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of the excuse that I had too when people would look at the things I was doing and they would be like, Oh, she's so young, you know, this really tragic thing happened. It's understandable. Mm-hmm. She's acting out, she needs attention. Um, and I definitely played up on that mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, and I think I fully believe that I was predisposed to addiction. And, um, I think that the fact that it was normalized while I was growing up um, was also something that, you know, contributed to my easy slide into picking it up, not, you know, responsible for my addiction, but the fact that it was like almost an obvious thing to do after this horrific, tragic thing happened. Right. Well, I think you people in your life respond to any stress in that way. Right. I mean, it was, as you said, it was normal that your mom drank every day and the people around you, but I'm sure you saw it escalate when things got harder, right? So it seemed like that's what had been modeled for you. So it does seem to sort of make sense. Yeah. And it was like, everybody, uh, everybody knew what was going on with my mom, but everybody gave her a pass almost like nobody held her accountable for anything. Um, It was, you know, it was like a, a network of people that would just like cover for her and hide her shit and like explain away things. And like, she never had, there was no uh, repercussions for anything. And so of course that network became my network. And so when I started doing all those things, it was the same sort of thing. Right. And then I had all these people explaining away everything, um, which in the beginning, I'm sure, yes, like I was totally, you know, broken uh, I didn't know what to do with myself. I had no attention was being given to me because the only person that I, you know, spent it, all my time with was gone. Right. Um, and so where did you stay during that time? So I was living with, so my mom was married at that time. Um, and it was a very strange relationship. Um, we, it was really toxic. Um, he, he was the kind of guy that to just bury his head in the sand. Mm-hmm. So he knew what was going on. Right. But it's like, if you don't talk about it, it's not really a problem. You just sort of clean up the mess as it comes along kind mm-hmm. of. Thing. Yeah. So definitely not emotionally supportive mm-hmm. and certainly not emotionally supportive to a child. So, um, you know, I was living there, but it was like, <sighs> I may as well have been living anywhere because it was not, it, it was not a, a household that you would think of as a family sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it was a really strange environment, really. And I had a younger sister. I have a sister that's 10 years younger than me. Okay. So she was a child, like a small child when this happened. Um, and she's the one that had found my mom. And so there was this whole, like, now we have to focus on her, make sure she doesn't lose her mind. She's very young. Like we need to watch for all these warning signs of things. Um, and so it was like my mom and my sister got, you know, the complete focus. And I felt like I was just kind of left behind almost. Um, and everybody like moved on. Right. And I was still here. Like, what the fuck? I right. Don't I don't know what to do with myself. I don't know. You know, nobody's telling me go to school. Nobody's telling me, oh, maybe you shouldn't date that boy. Like there was none of that at all. Um, it was all just like trying to keep all the other pieces together. And then Sonia was just doing whatever I was doing. Right. You know? Yeah. And I, a big that's part of my for real disaster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it really is. yeah. Like really, that's a hard age to feel uh, in your body anyway, because it's confusing anyway, and then layer all of that on top of it. Um, yeah, you know, what a, what a journey for you. And um, it all makes sense, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, it was confusing. And I think that, like, I gravitated towards relationships, right? Like, uh, and as a young, impressionable woman, it was like, uh, an easy slide into unhealthy, you know, relationships. And mm -hmm. obviously I never really had a great model of a healthy relationship. So that was, you know, the first like real relationship I got into, which was like my first true kind of step into this really dirty kind of underground world of drugs was I, you know, I was 14 and then I started dating this guy who was 21 and he was a heroin addict. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just by chance we, we hook like we just found each other strangely right, right. and um yeah then everything just spiraled from there and right. so it started out very small you know smoking weed whatever and then it just immediately went head first into full-fledged drug addiction and all the things that come with that you know lying cheating stealing yeah. getting arrested stop going to school hurting people, selling my body, selling everything I owned, stealing from my family, you know? Um, and so it's interesting because I was so young, yeah. but in my brain, I was just like, I could have been 20, 30, you know, it. You lose all sense of reality, it sounds like. And, you know, I've just, I mean, I witnessed that with Kate when heroin came on the scene, that's when there was no more, um, boundaries yeah. right and how you showed up for yourself or anyone else but it it also feels like there's almost um you can't I think of it like kind of like a two-year-old that is only looking for what they need yeah. like you don't see all the peripheral stuff happening you see that chocolate Ooh. chip cookie if you're a two-year-old and you just want that and it doesn't really matter and you know that's like a whole different light but I feel like with heroin you just don't let anything stand in your way to get there yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, people, that's why, you know, when you have someone in your life who's an addict, they can do these horrible things, neglect their children, you know, steal from the people they love so much. And it's like, if you're someone who, who's never experienced addiction, you look at that and it's like, how could they possibly do that? You know, but 
like you said, you are just completely focused on this one thing and you don't even see everything else around you. So it's very easy to do whatever you need to do. And I just honestly hearing you say that and knowing how it feels standing outside of that and how it does, it like rips our hearts out for anyone. Cause it's, it's insane. It's insane. It's insane. And, um, and it also, honestly, I'm so glad you're here nine years in sobriety because sometimes it just feels hopeless. It feels like it's such a strong addiction. How do people get pulled out of it? And I know maybe you can step into that part of your story, like how it got you to the point of stepping out. Yeah, I, it, you know, everybody's kind of, you know, rock bottom, I guess, or is different. Some people have multiple and the sad reality is some people don't have one. Right. And then there's some people that will die, you know, doing what they do. Um, and I had multiple levels of bottoms. Um, and I think that the, the one that finally, finally stuck was, you know, I had, I was in a program called drug court. So I was required to go to meetings. Um, and I, did a 12 step program. Um, and I met my sponsor. She's, she became my sponsor. She's my sponsor for 10 years. So I started when I was 16 Mm -hmm. in meetings and, um, I was being drug tested. So I was doing what I was supposed to do to not use. Right. But nothing, there was no like thing of substance that happened other than, uh, I didn't want to go back to jail that made me, stop using drugs. There was no, there was nothing deep down inside of me that was like, I'm going to stop forever. It was like, I'm going to stop for now so I can get everybody off my back yeah. and we'll move on from there. Um, and then it, it wasn't until I was 17 and I was living with my best friend and I was, I had relapsed and I was lying to everybody, you know, pretending that I hadn't relapsed and I was finding ways around drug tests uh, and, uh, you know, like ways to gain the system almost. And just this web of lies I created. Yeah. It becomes an art, like how to stay in the clinic. Right. And still be using, but show up and be able to, yeah. Yeah. You get lots of practice though. Yeah. Right. Interaction as an addict is a chance to learn how to lie better or manipulate better because that's all you can do, you know. Uh, and then I, I was in, I caused a terrible car accident. Um, I was drinking and driving, and my best friend was in the passenger seat, you know, and I was going like 101 miles an hour down this road, and I flipped my car three times, and I had a seatbelt on, but she didn't have a seatbelt on. Uh, and so she, she was in a coma for about two weeks, you know, she, she broke her neck, her back, you know, her lungs collapsed, all the bad things happened to her. And I was totally fine because I had a seatbelt on. Right. So nothing happened to me. Um, and I remember the next morning I woke up, obviously I went to jail and, um, waking up knowing what I did, what my actions did, that they took this person. I loved so much, my best friend, and hurt her. It was a different, it was a different level of, you know, guilt and shame and embarrassment. Whereas before it was like, I didn't matter if I hurt myself. I put myself in bad situations all the time. I did all sorts of crazy stuff, but it was like knowing that my addiction brought me to the point where I almost killed 
this person that I love so, so much and nothing happened to me. So I was like, that was almost more punishment too. You know, like I, I came out, no bruises, no anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was like on life support. And so it felt like that was just this point in life where I was like, you don't get any lower than that, that feeling, uh, there's nothing below that. And, um, and then seeing my grandparents face my Nana, who I became, you know, she mostly raised me. She was kind of the one to step in and be rational when things would get really out of hand. And she always loved me no matter what. And just, oh, she was so hurt. She was mm-hmm. like, it, it's going to make me cry. But mm-hmm. she, it felt like I took, I took life from her and she, it was just a horrific it was horrific. And so I think the fact that seeing what I did to these people, I love so much. Uh, I was like, well, I'm, you make a choice at that point. Like I'm either probably going to die doing this, or I'm going to become a really good person, not just a person who stops, stops doing drugs and goes about life, but I'm going to become as good of a person as I can Mm -hmm. and try my hardest to help as many people as I can because that's all I could do from there. That was the only way that I could feel like my life continued to have a purpose was if I went above and beyond everything. Um, and that was, that was an intense time in life. That was really hard. Well, Um, I have to, I mean, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I know that's really, uh, you know, raw in your heart and those points, but I don't know that they ever, um, heal completely. Um, but it is, and I do, you say like, um, I didn't really have a choice or you, you did have, you had two choices, right. And you luckily chose the path you did, but something awakened in you in that moment though, that I do think is, um, I don't know. I mean, the more I talk to people, it feels like a little divine intervention because there's certainly people that could go through that and still continue. Mm -hmm. There's some light that shone in a little bit to your heart, right? Maybe not for yourself at that point, because you couldn't feel that, right? But for the people in your life that you loved. And I don't know, I just like to really acknowledge that. And then the incredible strength that it takes to stay with that thought, you know, and, and continue. Yeah, yeah, I think that that could have easily been if I hadn't had those feelings that I had, I could have just continued on, you know, with my life, the way that I was going. And I definitely wouldn't be here today. That's for sure. Um, And not only did you want to change it, but then you just, you set such this high bar for yourself. That's really interesting to me and, and beautiful. And I know you, I know you're living that way now. So um, that does reinstill the hope that I was mentioning a little hopelessness that we feel walking beside it. You are um, representative of the hope that we can hold. Really? Yeah. I felt like I'm a, I, you know, I did a 12 step program uh, and the, the foundation of that would be, you know, some sort of spiritualness and uh, the fact that I chose to call this God, you know, it was just kind yeah. of the word that I put on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was the whole, the whole principle of it is to take yourself, right? Like realize you're not in control of everything. You can't control everything. And then, you know, you hand your will and your life over to the care of God as we understood. And this is sort of what they say. Yeah. Um, and I feel like 
that in doing that and making, making that my kind of, you know, the way that I was going to live my life, there was, there was no, to me, no option other than be as good and as helpful as I can possibly be. It didn't seem like I was left unharmed for no reason. It felt like I didn't, you know, there was a reason that I didn't die or that she didn't die. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like, who was I to say, like, actually, I think I'm still in control here and, you know, pretend like I knew what was what I felt like that, that wasn't, that wasn't the way that was going to go down. That's so interesting. And so I'm picturing you sort of sitting in jail, having this sort of awakening of sorts. Right. And then I imagine, you know, there was a journey forward from there. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, so I ended up, uh, spending five months in rehab voluntarily after that, uh, one, because I had turned, you know, all that happened at the end of October, uh, and my birthday was in March. And so I was in foster homes at the time. And so when you're 18, you phase out of foster care. So, uh, and I was not able to live with my mom. And so I was homeless. I had nowhere to go and I had, I had uh, no one to go to. So I, I stayed there and, um, there was a program at spectrum that was opening up. Um, and it was still being built at that time. So I stayed there until they finished the construction of this program. Um, and I did go to a halfway house when I left rehab because I feel like if you take yourself out of such an intense therapeutic 24 seven environment, like rehab and try to put yourself right into life, it's a recipe for disaster. It's not going to work out. get lost over and over and over again. And so I went to a great halfway house. Um, and, and then I moved to Burlington. Um, and that's when shit got real. And, um, you know, on top of all this spiritual addiction and everything, I had an intense legal situation happening because I had to face the consequences for my actions. I caused this innocent person, you know, to almost die because I was drinking and driving. And so, you know, there was a a felony, felony charge that was over my head Mm -hmm. uh, and I was waiting for trial and I was put on house arrest. So I had like an ankle monitor and I had an alcohol monitor on my other ankle. And so here I am, you know, like 18 now trying to, trying to pull my life together. And I have these literal weights on my ankles, like a constant reminder of what I did. Uh, And it was very bizarre. Um, I have to feel like what incredible strength it must take. I mean, that's almost like shame on both feet, right? Yeah. Right. That you're walking around and having to be with, and there's no escaping that. And if there were, they were not the type of things you could hide either. It wasn't like I could just put pants on and you wouldn't know. So, which was also, I think it's by design somewhat because like you cannot hide your situation like that. And, um, so, and I was living, I was living in this group setting. Um, and the whole point of this program was to show you how to be like a functional member of society. And so, um, I had, there was a woman there named Candy who I hated so much at first. I hated her. 
but she was so amazing and so uh, confident in who she was. And, you know, I had her and then I had my sponsor on the other hand, who's also, I mean, these two women, incredible women, women that, you know, you look at and you're just like, wow, they really have it going on. And they really did have it going on too. Not just like, they look like their life is good. It's like, they do all the gritty, shitty work that, that, that makes you feel whole and helps you, helps you be a productive member of society. And so what is, was, can you talk about what that looks like? Like, what are they just that they hold you to your truth or they call out your bullshit or what is that? I guess. Yeah. And, and, you know, they're human, right? And so both of these women had hard upbringings, hard past. Okay. And my sponsor who dealt with drug addiction and, and Candy who did not deal with drug addiction, but she had, you know, family history with drug addiction. Both of these women um, held themselves to a very high standard of living in which they, they chose to live fully authentically. And that, you know, like saying what they wanted, saying what they needed. And when, when something wasn't right, they spoke up. And when, when uh, they were wrong, they said they were wrong. And they had those hard conversations that you always want to avoid. They just did that stuff. And what, what's really incredible is like, none of that really comes naturally. It's like, they make themselves do that, which I think is really, I mean, that speaks volumes to choose to, to just be honest. Yeah. It's to stand in your truth. And I think that, um, we do shy away from that because it makes us uncomfortable and it makes other people uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. 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 So what a, that's like tremendous role models for that. Yeah. 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 And they got there because they do think that their life experiences and they, was this through AA? So my sponsor was through NA and then Candy, she happened to be my case manager at Spectrum. So do you think they had both worked the 12 step program? No. So my sponsor, definitely candy. No. Um, which I think was also important for me to have strong people in my life from all walks of life. And, uh, uh, you know, the 12 steps guided me through recovery, but I also needed, you know, just a person that was someone that could be like, you know, you can still bust ass and, you know, do all the things you want to and be an honest, truthful person. Um, and they were both exactly the people I needed in my life. Uh, and I, I think that especially when you're a young woman in recovery, it's so important to find these other women, not men, other women that are, you know, they embody the things that you wish you were yeah. uh, and then to just befriend them basically, yeah. or basically yeah. say like, show me how to live, show me how to, how to be a person. Right. Cause you know, at that point in life, there's, you're starting from the ground up. Yeah. Right? Well, even it was your age, but do you think, I mean, I've seen this in, in my daughter, even, even things she knew how to do as a mother to her children uh, when she integrated back in at different points, she really like lost that skill set. Yeah, yeah. She just couldn't put the pieces back together without you modeling it for her. So I wonder, it, it's definitely a little bit age. And I do think you 
you probably missed a lot of developmental stages in your life going through your addiction when you did, but it does, it causes this arrest, you know, within your development. So it's whatever age, I guess. Yeah. 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 Any age, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, they say that when you, you start using again, or you're actively using your growth stops. So, you know, like it's, when you're, when you're using, if you, if you have a period of a year or two years or 10 years where you're in active addiction and then you stop using, it's going to be almost like you revert back to the age before, right? Like you don't experience, you can't absorb the, um, the growth and the life situations that happen in that time. Cause you're not, you're not you. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's, I think that is one of the hard things when people get clean. And when I got clean is you expect yourself to be at this certain point and, uh, and then you find out you're not at yeah. that point. And well, and I think the people around you expect it too. Exactly. Exactly. Right? So it's really hard. And that's why it's so important to make sure you have people around you that, um, are, are committed to your growth also, and not just having an expectation of who you're supposed to be, but understanding that like you are where you are and that's that, and, you know, move forward from there, not holding this anger and resentment that you're not further along like you should be. Yeah. They, they get it. And yeah. so, yeah, what a, what a gift that there's people like uh, your sponsor and candy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Walking this path and holding space for, for that, which I know you've now done for others too. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the biggest, I think, um, the most important part of recovery is giving back. Like, you know, it, it would make no sense to do all this really hard work and, talk about all this shit and relive all this trauma and like focus on being better. If I was going to keep all that to myself after like, you know, because that would be selfish. And so that would not be living in the, in the truth that I believe that there is. So I also think, um, for me, even having this podcast, some days I'm like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't like living in this space any more than I need to, but yet kind of feels like a little waste of your life. If you're not taking what you learn, especially an issue this big, that's affecting so many people and trying to figure out how we can, you know, increase the healing capacity, you know, and help, you know, help people along the road. So, yeah. yeah. I think um, there's, you know, you, you just never know who's going through what, like yeah. you know, I had just, I mean, I've probably seen you in the salon, right. And we never knew anything about each other. Right. It's only until you, you, you start having honest conversations and talking about things that you realize there's people out there who've had experiences and gotten through them that could help you or help someone else. And like the way that I, I, you know, have that day when I woke up in the cell, And I said, like, I'm going to live as good a life as I possibly can and help as much as I possibly can. That included doing all the things I didn't always want to do, which was like talking to other addicts, sponsoring women's. I've spoken at lots of rehabs and schools and charity events. And like, 
I didn't always want to do all that stuff, but it wasn't, that was not, that would have been a selfish thing if I, you know, had this information and this experience and I kept that to myself, that would be just selfish. (laughs) Well, I think that that's one way to look at it, but I do think, um, you know, it's a karmic two by four a little bit is one of my yoga teachers says to me, (laughs) right. And you know, you set that intention for yourself. I mean, that's just in your soul of why you're here and what you've chosen to do. And it's, it's really a gift to everyone. And I, I was so thankful when we connected, um, on so many levels and so glad that you're here just to share this. Cause I know there's a lot of people looking yeah. to understand, um, to have hope. Yeah. Right. And to know, you know, and what's important, like I, even for me, like, as I try to understand my daughter's struggle, I mean, I know she hasn't done the deeper dive. I know she doesn't have the community that's going to support her in recovery. So she just pieces the external pieces of her life together, which you and I talked about. And I know you're still dealing with this with your mom and you did it with yourself for a while. Like you said, you gloss it over and you, you keep, you know, because you're dabbling and then you're, it gets further and further and further and that it's a progressive disease. And it didn't surprise you that when I told you Caitlin was originally just a, you know, a mom hiding her addiction with prescription drugs. And then I think just pills, I don't really know exactly, but then it became heroin and the world fell apart. And then it became just local, but then it became dealing drugs in a much bigger way that crossed its states. And, you know, it's just, it seemed really obvious to you that it's a progressive disease and it doesn't surprise you that one leads to the next. It surprised me. I didn't know, you know, it all surprises me. I just have learned as I go. Um, And that, yeah, you can't, unless you're willing to, the more we accept, um, I mean, this is what you and I talked about as I'm struggling right now, as you all can hear, Caitlin's not on this podcast with us for a reason. She's still struggling. Her relapse wasn't just a weekend. Um, And she still kind of pieced it together. In fact, I'm not sure that she wasn't using a little bit all fall. Um, But the tipping points come and go. And at some point, which I'm at now, I realize the more I continue to allow her in and hold that space, why would she want to get, why would she want to go the next step? Right. Yeah. Yeah. The consequences we, I had talked about that with you is um, facing consequences for your actions and uh, you know, how important that is to be held accountable. And like, I, you know, my mom is still actively using and uh, you know, being an addict is, part of who you are when you do drugs it's just kind of like a symptom of it it's just a thing that you do but addiction is like so inside of you um and it affects everything that you do and what you say and the way you say things um and so you know when you have when you have an addict and maybe they're not using drugs at that second mm-hmm. chances are pretty good that if they're not like actively trying to be as brutally honest as possible your natural instinct as an addict is to lie to to make things seem better than they are and to minimize and that's just it's just what you do you know and um even when you're not using even when you're not used to have it yeah 
it's really easy if you're not making a conscious effort to live honestly and truthfully, it's very, very difficult mm. to, to continue to move towards the light. Right. And that's why you have a lot of people who my dad, for example, he's an addict. He doesn't, he doesn't drink or use drugs anymore, but he doesn't do any sort of program or healing work. And so you look at him in his life and you would almost still assume that he does drugs because of, of the way he lives and the way he talks and his, his self, you know, identification. And it's all, it's all, it's all part of addiction. And if you're not, if you're not working to be better, you're just going to slide more into it because it just doesn't go away. Like it never goes away. You're never cured. You're never not a drug addict. You will always be. And um, that's why it's, you have to continuously make the choice to, to every single day, be honest and, you know, do the next right thing. Cause if you, if you get away from that at all, it's so easy to slide back into things and you can get people that have had multiple years of recovery that you, you move away from intentionally living and you just, you're the little addict in you kind of just creeps its way up. And you start like lying about stupid little things that just don't even matter. And it's very easy to slide right back into it. And then you can have someone who had 10 years of, you know, sobriety and then they can go get high and you're, it just goes to show you, it just doesn't go away. It's always there. Um, and so it's a conscious choice. And so like, you know, what you were saying with your daughter, how she, you know, she stopped using for a little bit and then kind of slide back in and use and, um, that's exactly what happens. Like using drugs is the, is the, the small part of it. Like once you stop using drugs, it's almost like that's when everything really starts happening. So the first step is to stop using the drugs. Right. And then you then you work on the problem. Yeah. And yeah. if you don't do the next part of the problem work, it's, it's, it doesn't matter if you stop yeah. using drugs or not. So it sounds like it's not just about, um, yeah, it's not just about not using, it's yeah. about making, and you said a conscious choice, but it's also like an active. Yeah. It's a yep. conscious choice to actively be um, like serving, serving in a, di- in a different way, right? Or um, in a yeah. way that supports your sobriety, whatever that looks like to you. Yeah. Like you've chosen to do a lot of talks and to support people, but for a lot of, to be a sponsor, but for a lot of people, is it just, I mean, it could be anything. So some people to yoga, we've had a lot of people on here that have turned to yoga as their thing um, and have that community that supports them. But it sounds to me, which, you know, I'm thinking about like um, the opposite of depression isn't happiness, but it's purpose. Someone I follow say that, and it's almost like you have to have a purpose around your sobriety. Like, um, which in some ways like holds a lot of hope for me around addiction, which can be overwhelming, but you think there's so many people struggling and we all, I mean, we all have an addictive behavior. Yeah. Anyway. So it just almost for me, like pushes the envelope a little bit more around, um, all that we've been through on a world level right now. Like it just pushes that idea around, um, being, um, proactively trying to support a healthier way of being right around kindness and compassion and 
understanding in, an, in a really active way. And if everyone that struggles with addiction were to find their way to the light through um, having clear purpose, which I think is hard. It's hard to go from where you were, man, that things, it was, a, I'm sure a really long journey for you. Um, and things had to align. Yeah. 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 And, and you had to stay on task because I mean, I, I've walked beside Caitlin's journey. It's not like she doesn't know all the resources. It's not like she hasn't stepped foot into them or met people that could support her, but it just hasn't. And, you know, you know, again, we talk about, you'd think losing all your children would be enough. Right. And then coming out of that and not even being actively using and, and not that still not being enough of a driving force. Yeah. Yeah. I know there's, it's hard. There's, you can't put logic to it because it's a logical thing. Right. So just like with my mom, I mean, man, she's, she's lost everything at points. She's, she's still using, right. And likely chances are good. She'll probably continue using forever. Uh, and I mean, she just, it's, uh, it's really complicated. And like, there's there's you can't rationalize it because it would never make sense to anybody else but the person going through it and like you know what you were saying about purpose when I was growing up you know saying I had you know my purpose felt like to take care of her right and then that was taken so you have to fill it with another purpose and drugs are so easy and so when I got clean you know saying I'm not going to just live a good life. Like I'm setting this bar very high and that's going to be my purpose is to, to live truly and authentically. So I can come here on this podcast and say all these things and know I really live my life this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is my purpose. I fully believe is to, to spread whatever message of hope that there is. And that, you know, if you grew up and watched your parents as addicts, it's possible that you know, to have healthy boundaries and uh, to be supportive, but not uh, let them emotionally drain you. And it's possible if you yourself are an addict and you've, you've done, you know, awful things and horrible things and you've hurt your kids and that it's possible to come through that on the other side and mend relationships like it's all possible because I, I've done all of the parts. Yeah, you are walking proof of that. And that just makes my heart fall. And thank you so much <laughs> for setting that uh, potential out there for, for those of us that want to hold hope around it. And for those that are walking the path for sure. Yeah. yeah. Just talking about it though. I think that's the most important thing. That's why this is so awesome. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I mean, the conversation continues for sure. So when you, um, I'm sure you still have hard days. Oh yeah. I'm just wondering if you can share like what, um, do you have any practices that you have in your day to help you, um, stay resilient? Yeah. So I'm married. Uh, my husband is in recovery also. Um, and I would say that, a healthy marriage is something every day that uh, I consciously make a commitment to. Um, and, you know, I'm not as involved in the 12 steps anymore as I used to be, but I have um, this constant reminder in my life to be 
honest and truthful uh, and, you know, just live honestly. And it's not like, you know, I, I think therapy is great. I've done lots of therapy. Um, but I, it's a, it's when the situations happen, when, when really uncomfortable, tense situations happen, um, telling myself I have control over how I react. Um, Mm -hmm. and I can, I can make the choice to be honest and truthful, um, and forcing myself to do it because so many times, like, I would rather just not talk about things like when my mom, when things get hard with my mom or my husband, like, and something happens that hurts me, right. It's easier to just not want to talk about it, but I have to tell myself, you have a responsibility to be honest and, and to, to set things up in a way that you can live. And like, it's a constant reminder because if I didn't constantly remind myself of that, I just wouldn't do it. So it's not the sort of thing where like, I've done all this recovery work and then every day I'm just like recovered, you know, and I deal with things perfectly because that is so not the way it is. It's a conscious reminder to, to be honest and to do the next right thing and to try not to hurt anybody. So those are kind of like the ways that I would deal with things. I love that. Um, And I've heard that from Glennon Doyle a little bit, doing the next right thing. Like, and I think for me, I related to that at a point when I often have felt a lot of burden around my journey of um, raising a second family, my four grandchildren and allowing space for Kate's relapses and recoveries. And it's hard. It's really hard. Um, And then you build a lot of resentment around it at times and anger. And then, and then it becomes, there's a point, sometimes it just becomes too much. And I'm sure you've felt this a little bit with walking beside your mom. Like you have to find that place of balance and you have to revisit it over and over and over again. Yeah. Constantly. Constantly. Um, and I guess you can only gauge that on like what your balance is and what your energy is. And my reactivity is often, um, to the kids is often a good gauge for me to say like, what's really bothering me? Cause that wasn't that anything to react that way to. Um, but anyway, I also, I think when I can continue to surrender to the fact that this is much bigger than anything I can hold up. You know, I'm just, I've chosen, as you said, that power of choice, I've chosen to raise this family. Um, and I'm committed to that. Uh, and that's all I can really do. Like I can't control the outcome of theirs or hers. Um, and you can't give enough love to make it all better. And I think those are the things that are really hard to let go of. Um, and I know my faith and spirituality has grown, um, just because I've needed it, you know, and I think a lot of people need it right now because there's so much uncertainty that, um, it's a good practice, regardless if it's the situations you and I are in, or if it's just dealing with a pandemic and the lack of certainty of what tomorrow will be and when we'll be able to resume life as we, as we know it. So those, those, I think those are things that you begin to embody and live, which it sounds to me like you've done. And that is the power of choice, the, the, the faith that we are being held, right? And that all we can really do is show up and do then the next right thing. Exactly. 
Yeah. And it's, it's hard when you're trying to support all the, like you trying to support all of these people and, and keep everybody above water, right. And keep yourself above water. Mm -hmm. And it's like, sometimes feels like there's being pulled under constantly and it's hard to breathe and you're still expected to, to deal with things and be rational and not get so angry and take things personally. And like, it's just not the way it is. It is so human. And, and I think that it's so okay to, to say like, this is hurting me, you know, your actions have hurt me. And to, to have someone like bear a little bit of that responsibility because you know, it's not all your responsibility or the kid's responsibility to, to hold the weight of emotional things, you know, like I think putting it back on someone sometimes is extremely important. I would, I'd like to hear, I'd like to get a little feedback on that because I do walk on eggshells a little bit at times with the honesty with Kate, because she's struggling already. I know she has so much shame and guilt already. Um, but, and I do, I, and I do say when there, there's things, the line she's crossed, I do, I do call her out on it or call her in however you want to, but you feel like, I think there's this fear that you're going to push them further into their addiction yeah, yeah. by being yeah. honest and truthful. So yeah. maybe um, having walked on that side of it, do you have any thoughts about that that could take, allow us to really be truthful and, and maybe a way that does it that's more serving? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think um, that the fear of like pushing someone, you know, more like more towards active addiction is a super real fear. Um, And I think that that fear doesn't come from nowhere. I think that fear is built in by manipulation of the addict. So over time, you know, when, uh, when little things happen, just like me, I would make the excuse of my childhood was hard. I had a hard life, you know, don't, don't emotionally burden me too much. Right. Because I'm sensitive and fragile. And so even though all that's bullshit, like it's, it's just all, it's a good, you know, veneer to put up. And so the longer you're in an active addiction, you, you know how to say these little things to, to emotionally target people and to make them get off your case basically. And over time, it builds up this, this fear and the other person in your family um, to not push you too hard because of the fear that you're going to spiral, which is what you do as an addict. That's what you want, right? You want everybody to be afraid to confront you with certain things. So you can continue doing whatever you want to do without knowing that there's going to be serious consequences uh, because you've, you've set the foundation really well. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, it's, it's a manipulative sort of kind of tactic. And I think that um, it's hard to separate that, but to know that um, there's no way that you or anybody else would push somebody further into addiction, right? Like they're going to be further if they're going to be further. Uh, If you were to say something, they might use that as an excuse. They might use that against you saying, you did this to me. Like you brought up the fact that you know, you have my kids or me that I, you know, caused this car accident. And like, that's why I'm totally spiraling and it like washes your hands of it. But that's just, that's a cop out. And if, if someone's going to delve further into it, 
they are already going to. Okay. It's going to happen. The foundation is there. Like, like I said, you know, addiction is progressive. And so it's always inside of you, like wanting you to go further and further into it. Um, and so if you let it, that's, what's going to happen. It's totally not relevant. What other people say, you know, it's a, it's a conversation that you have with yourself and your, your own little addiction. And like, you're going to, you're just going to. So I think that, um, you know, you and for everybody else who's, who's having that feeling. And I have that feeling sometimes too, with my mom, it's a natural, it's a natural instinct because you're conditioned that way to remind yourself that you, you are, you have no control or power over their choices, right? They do. So if you're speaking truthfully and honestly, all you're responsible for is getting the truth out there. And then what they do with that is not, it's not a result of what you said, Yeah, you know, it's just what's going to happen. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that because it is a line I've walked on a lot. And, um, and when I don't embrace my truth, that's where the anger and resentment really begins to build, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. and more fear, right? And the truth always sets us free because because it is so, like I really can't control what she does. You can't control what your mom does. And so it's like a double whammy when we compromise, you know, when I was compromising what I was allowing to happen in my home or allowing to happen with the kids. And you get, you question yourself, even though you've been through it a million times, but um, just to everyone out there, right? Like follow your gut if you've been walking this road a while. And so you miscall something like, well, then it shouldn't be a problem. It's <laughs> either way, right? You can't go wrong speaking your yeah. truth. This is how yeah. I feel. This is what I think is happening. Because they'll definitely often make you feel like you're a little crazy to be thinking that. And yeah. And gaslighting is a tactic for sure of, you know. Gaslighting. Yeah. 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 They'll make you think that you're imagining things or that you're making things up. Yeah. Even though it's really happening, they, you're just having to call them out on their shit, you know, yeah. they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to deal with that. It's, it's, it's so hard. interesting. I mean, the, there's so many emotions around this. It's, I just am really enjoying having you talk about it from your perspective um, of someone in, in long-term recovery and um, having been in active addiction, because sometimes it just all feels like uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, because it's not like how you, I don't know, you're raised to be kind and, and yeah. understanding and, you know, hold space for people. I certainly was. And um, so I always want to operate from a place of kindness, but it takes a lot of work to know those boundaries are loving, even though it just doesn't feel that way inside often. Yeah. yeah. I think we're all sort of condition, especially women are conditioned to, to want to be peacekeepers and be pleasant and not rock the boat too much, you know? And I think it just contributes to, especially as moms, caretakers, right? Like it's, it's hard to, to stand up and, and say what you need to say, and then realize like, you're not responsible for how somebody takes that. As long as you are not intentionally hurting someone and you're you're trying to do the next right thing and you're being honest, you're not responsible for their reaction. 
Those are great little golden nuggets that you keep repeating, but I hope everyone's hearing them because we all need those things to hold on to when we get at those crossroads and uncomfortable moments, but we can do hard things. We are doing hard things and you can still live a beautiful life. You're, you're doing it. Yeah. 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 So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I was going to ask, I always ask like if there's some little thing, little piece of wisdom you want to impart at the end. I don't know if you have something, I feel like you've shared a lot (laughs) of that, but is there any, any one thing you want to leave um, our audience or our community with? Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say, um, you know, the talk around addiction and dealing with loved ones that are addicts or being an addict yourself, like to just keep talking about it for everybody to keep talking about it, because it's like this thing, if you keep it in the darkness, it's, you can't deal with it. You can't face it. And like the second that you start talking to people about it, uh, it becomes manageable. And I think that, um, if I could say anything to anybody about this, it's to like try to eliminate the shame or the guilt about, or the embarrassment about talking about this because that's no use. Like it, it, that's going to get nobody further. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that there's always someone out there who's experienced what you're experiencing. There's no, there's no situation anybody could go through that somebody else hasn't been through. Um, but you'll never know that if you don't talk to people. And so I'm always very upfront and honest about the fact that I'm an addict and especially with, with my job, you know, I have a lot of people and I'm always upfront about that. And it opens the the door for conversation about that. Um, and it makes it okay to, to talk to somebody about those things. And so I think that, you know, nobody's alone. Nobody's going through this by themselves. Um, and like I keep saying, just to, uh, try to do the next right thing always and to not hurt anybody and, uh, to be as honest as you can. I mean, that's the way that I try to make all my decisions and I try to deal with all scenarios. And if you, if you can constantly remind yourself of that, it's a lot easier to manage. Thank you. That's really nice. I feel like um, the one thing about addiction, when you do the work like you have, you um, have so much wisdom to move through the world with yeah, and to spread that and others will benefit. You don't have to walk through addiction to benefit from that advice. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I thought it was a really great conversation. Um, I also just wanted to talk to you and let you know that I am changing the format a little bit of the podcast. I'll still continue to interview people in recovery or walking beside someone struggling with addiction so we can continue to connect and inform and learn from all of this experience that we're having and hold space for love and hope. But I also am going to include a episode that is, I think I'm going to call it Wisdom of the Sages. It's talking to people that are doing work around um, addiction, around resiliency and hope, around finding our way through the world in a way of self-discovery. So it could be people treating 
addiction from a different lens, a few shaman type of approaches, and also some scientists um, that are actually working on the brain and the neuroscience with addiction, and then people that are just on this path of self-discovery and what we can learn about ourselves on the way, just to help us like have the best version of this life that we can and um, learn from each other around that. So everyday gurus kind of and their wisdom. And then on the other weeks, I will offer some mind-body medicine type of tools around stress management and resiliency and some of my coaching just around building um, health and happiness, both of mind, body, and spirit. And I'll throw a little bit of my yoga philosophy in there for those of you interested. So a little more storytelling, a little more advice from some sages, and a little more practical advice about how to take care of ourselves. So look for that coming up in the episodes going forward. Have a wonderful day. I love you guys. Thanks for being part of the Zen Mom and the Attic community. I know that... We're helping each other just through these conversations. Be sure to do one thing today for yourself. Celebrate you and find something that feels good and make it a priority because we need to put our oxygen masks on first and grow our inner light and then we can shine that out into the world, which is so much in need right now. But we got this, you guys. We can do hard things. Take care. Have the best day you can.